0: Hello, listeners of the Mad Scientist Podcast. I am your host, Chris Cogswell, here with a special bonus episode. I am talking to two guys that do a podcast that I have uh, fallen uh, really hard in love with. I love your guys' show, the Semi-Intellectual Musings Podcast. I am joined here by Matt and Phil. Guys, how you doing? I'm good. Thanks hey. for having us. No problem. Yeah, oh, my goodness. So exciting. So... Guys, why don't you tell people a little bit about your show and kind of, um, you know, what, what brings you uh, here on The Mad Scientist?
1: Well, like in a nutshell, our show is a social science, arts, and humanities podcast um, hosted by Phil and myself, Matt, um, and we cover a variety of topics. Uh kind of whatever strikes our fancy, and then we just do, like, the most ridiculous deep dive on it. Um, it's kind of our approach, and we try to have fun along the way. It's not a super si- serious uh, show, but we like to say that we take the the research very seriously.
0: Yeah, totally. So, what I really like about your guys' show is actually the, kind of this not the spin necessarily, kind of the edge that you bring to these topics and the stuff that you talk about. It's kind of, you know, there's a lot of shows out there, kind of similar to, say, like my show, right, where... It's a – It look, you know, people are talking about kind of the physical sciences, right? But with your guys' show, you're talking about, you know, these – the social sciences in a way that I think is really, really cool. And that's – you know, in many ways, the social sciences are sort of the sciences that are the most, I think, interesting and fun to talk about, right? That's – you know, the social sciences are where people interact with science, really, right? Um, People don't necessarily – you know, people may not ever think about a catalyst and whether or not it's a good for a specific type of reaction. Right. Who cares if platinum or palladium is better? But people will think about questions in you know, social sciences, uh, you know, things like bioethics and uh, anthropology and sociology and stuff like that. So. So tell us a little bit, I guess, about what you guys. what So what do you guys do? What made you think to start a podcast, I
2: guess? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a, that's a funny story. Um well, I guess uh, like Matt and I have been friends for what is it now? Eight years? Nine years? Almost a decade now, right? Okay. Um, yeah, and aging yeah. us and uh, also we scary. we met. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that is a little scary. Uh, well, we met uh, doing our master's degree. Uh, okay. So I was doing my master's in sociology. Um, Matt was doing his in anthropology, and uh, at Carleton University in Ottawa. And we had these like extreme, I'd, I'd call them like extreme writing sessions basically to finish up. So, like, we'd basically lock each other into a writing mode at Library and Archives Canada and write for like 10 hours a day until it was done. Um, that's basically how we finished our master's degrees. Um, and, you know, over the course of uh, our friendship and listening to podcasts, uh, kind of just decided to say, hey, wh- there isn't anything out there that really appeals to the social science, humanities, and arts community that tries to make things accessible and Mm -hmm. tries to connect, like, the, you know, social theories and the sort of things that we talk about on a daily-day basis within the department to, like, regular life outside, Um, you know. So if you look through our our catalog of uh, episodes, these are all things that we've talked about at one time or another at a pub. And that's kind of the feel that we're kind of going for is having a repertoire of things that you would just chat about with your buddies uh, over drinks or maybe over dinner or whatever. And they're things that are, like affect us. But we always bring kind of the research or the science, uh, like I said, the social theory or the anthropological side to it. And that's, that's what we try to do.
1: Good yeah, step. and it's... Sorry, it's like... Um, for me, it's also to... Popularize our two disciplines and and the arts and humanities and the social sciences in general. And um, I feel like academics struggle with making their work accessible. Um, and to me, I, and f- I probably speak for Phil as well, um, we find this stuff like genuinely fascinating and kind of analyzing the world around us with uh, the stuff we l- learned in uh, in university is is just like an endlessly fascinating pursuit, so um, when it seems like we're having fun along the way, um, that is genuine and also I think the goal is to try to make um, the stuff that goes on in the ivory tower kind of make it accessible for people.
0: Yeah, I think in some ways actually it's funny because the people kind of have this weird almost dual view of the social sciences, right where on the one hand, you have scientists like physical scientists right? People who you'd normally, I think, uh, people would normally ascribe to the term or title scientists, right? People, you know, in lab coats mixing chemicals or whatever. Um, they tend to, in some cases, look down on the social sciences, right? And there's even this famous, you know, this famous question in philosophy of science, are the social sciences sciences, right? Mm-hmm. That's sort of, you know, every, uh, every third year philosophy major who's also in a science class has asked that question, right? And then probably done a paper on it at least once. Yeah. I know I certainly did. And the uh, on the other hand then the social sciences are almost looked at by the public as this very you know far away ivory tower thing, right? Where it's kind of, you know, it's the kind of, it's the view that people have of philosophy as well, right? Is it's people, you know, making these theories up and then just talking about their theories all together, but there really is no application to the real world. What do you say to people that have that view, right? That these things have no application.
1: Okay. So I'll kick it over to Phil, like real quick and Phil, you take the ball and run with it. But um, part of this is like us not marketing ourselves well. Sure. um, In various disciplines, because what we do in the so-called ivory tower, like the topics we pursue have real world import. They're always political um they're like my research for example was on uh, concussions right i studied medical anthropology um so like i don't know we, i think i like to think that we pick our topics because they have political or real world import uh but you're right nobody really knows what we do and like nobody for sure knows what anthropology is so um <laughs> but yeah i think it's a problem of marketing but uh i'll let phil be a little more articulate there <laughs>
2: <laughs> um yeah there's there like I could talk about this forever, but I think um the way I'm going to approach it is basically to say that there is a dualism between um or a so called dualism between the applied versus the exploratory uh realm of research, so applied research are things that lead to discovery automatically there's an r o i return on investment, it can make money, and it has a so called real world application. Mm-hmm. And the hard sciences, you know, engineering, you know, I'm going to attack chemical engineers, um, are really good at doing (laughs) that sort of research, right? Oh, we're really good at it. Yeah, no, we're yeah, great
1: and, at it. In fact, and we're good at doing our homework on uh, any <laughs> yeah. show we're about to go on. <laughs> I got, I got a list too over here too. Oh my goodness, of
0: zingers to throw at me. I see how it is, guys. You know what? Similar intellectual musings. Two thumbs, two thumbs down. That's what. That's it. It's happened.
2: All right, continue, River full sorry. of arrows. Telling you, man. Killing me. Okay. So, so yeah. So in the public view. Everything that a chemical engineer does is applied research, but what doesn't get seen is the exploratory research that goes into it. Mm -hmm. So the minutes in a lab that are actually kind of failed experiments, right? Those things are just as important as the successful experiment that goes to market. And um, in the social sciences, there's a general public consciousness that all we do are failed experiments. Very few of it is actually applied research. But no one critiques the hard sciences for their failed attempts, right? No one Mm -hmm. says, wow, it took you a long time to discover uh, how to, you know, make that catalyst or, geez, it took NASA such a long time to figure out how to go to the moon, poo-hoo on them. But yet when you look at, you know, economists, for example, who are studying things like poverty, people say, well, why are they still studying it? Shouldn't they have found a solution to it, right? Right. (laughs) Right. It's like, no, there are social problems that take a very long time to come up with a solution, and there is never a single sole solution to the problems that we face. It requires exploratory research. It requires going out and talking to so many different people, hearing so many different voices, and then assembling that. And this is kind of like, regardless of your research methodology, methodology, right? You'd be doing statistical research. You still have to go out there and get that data. And Mm -hmm. at the end of your data collection it might not actually lead to anything. You might say, "Wow, I was approaching the question wrong. This isn't the right question to ask." So you come back to the drawing table. And I feel like the social sciences gets a really bad rap because in the public consciousness that's all we're doing and it doesn't lead to anything. When I you know, I position some of the stuff on our show as saying, you know, everything that we do is valuable at some point, even if it's not valuable right now for a business, for example. Mm.
0: So it's, it's actually really interesting. I think, you know, in some ways you're actually touching on a subject that is becoming... So, so I kind of have two things I wanted to say quick in response to that. So first off, the notion... It's funny you brought up poverty, right? Poverty has been a problem that we've been looking at or at least thinking about. Historians and artists and writers and, and right uh, thinkers, philosophers have been thinking about poverty and kind of the implications of poverty since before we knew that cancer was a thing, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: right? It's almost, it's a problem that is, uh, it's a problem that has been with us since forever. And then on top of that too, it's a, it's, you know, at least in uh, kind of the fields that I think you are both in, um, the subject that you're studying, societies or cultures or peoples change so rapidly, (laughs) right? Comparatively to say something like biology or even a disease where, you know, diseases, of course, can can uh, mutate and change very quickly, but ultimately, you know, I mean, you know, the human cell has been the same for, you know, millions of years, right? So uh, at some point, it's kind of like, you know, you got, you, you're given almost a shorter time period to do the study and make the changes, whereas your problems are almost bigger and more, I, I would argue, in some cases, even more entangled and intense, right? The other the other part that I was going to say that I actually think you bring up a very very good point is, in the that distinction between uh, science of any sort that ends up with a return on investment versus science that kind of sticks in the lab or sticks in the in the uh, ivory tower so to speak, right? One of the biggest issues right now for science is that we have focused so much on those experiments that are successful. We focus so yeah, much on yeah. selling our work that. We're at a point now where people are publishing fake work, <laughs> right? Yeah, and yeah. Uh, the public has lost trust in the sciences, in the hard sciences, especially because we've oversold our our results for so long, right? You can only say you've cured cancer so many times before people, you know, start buying crystals and stuff. <laughs> um. So or, actually, or bee
1: pollen, you know, right? <laughs> or, or <kind> of, <laughs> <laughs> um, so. So maybe like <laughs> Phil can tackle the the publisher parish kind of thing cuz I think mm. he's got mm. interesting things to say about that but I I got to jump in on that culture change thing um and also poverty and and healthcare. So there's a a field it's it's not new. It's um been around for say 25 30 years or so. It's they tend to call it public health, right? So mm-hmm. you see something like poverty and you look at the health dimensions of it or vice versa, right? Um, so we look at, like, the environment and the implication it literally has on people's health. Um, and you can do that on a statistical level or you can do my cell research where I might, like, you know, knock on somebody's door and try to talk to them for an hour. Um, so I just wanted to throw that in in terms of poverty. But with culture change, I think it's kind of interesting. Like, it seems like culture is changing really rapidly because I think... Because of the times that we're living in right now, Mm -hmm. Um, everything seems to be moving really fast. Um, But it's kind of like a rule of thumb in the social sciences that societies and cultures take a lot to change and they take a long time to change. Sure, They're actually not rapidly changing. Now, this is where this is a classic at a pub debate where you're like, do cultures change fast or slow or whatever, Right. Um, but typically it's like if a society is going to change, it's going to be something like the Bolshevik re- revolution mm-hmm. that is going to r- massively change. Now, when we see culture changing, it seems more like they're almost superficial changes, I, I would argue. But like the root norms, stigmas, taboos that are embedded into culture like deeply, those are the things that I think remain somewhat stable. Actually, so- it's a bit of a philosophical debate, but
0: No. I don't know. Well, I, I think it's actually really interesting because that that for me was probably one of the most, I think, transformative kind of things that I had I read. So when I started thinking about seriously pursuing this show as an option, like it's something that I wanted to really mm-hmm. spend money and time doing, right? right. Um, and really starting to put my research efforts in this realm, you know, I it was during... My undergraduate degree, when I was reading a lot of, I was reading a lot of philosophy of science, and a lot of, you know, just a lot of kind of going through the philosophy curriculum of an undergraduate, right. Yeah, I heard
1: you drop uh, Kuhn's name on the previous show. Oh, uh, yeah, of course. I was just like, wow, okay. And you spoke of him like you actually read him. Same with Descartes. (laughs) I'm like, oh, wow, you actually know that he was a moral philosopher. He wasn't a philosopher of science. That's interesting. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, yeah.
0: (laughs) I read uh, all all the big ones, all the terrible ones. You know, uh, (laughs) know, I think the only one that I managed to kind of get away with not reading was uh, Wittgenstein. Thankfully, Ooh. yeah, because I was not about that life. And actually, instead of instead of in the senior, like the two final years of so junior and senior year of the undergrad degree at UNH, they have a lot of really cool courses you can take. And so I, you know, because I'm a big science guy, I took a philosophy of science course, and then a a course specifically on Wittgenstein was taught. And instead of taking the Wittgenstein course, I actually took a course on. Um, on kind of, like, Marxist philosophy and right, good for critique you. and stuff. Well, you know, because well, it's one we'll, of those... We'll get into that. We'll you know, I can, I, man, I can get... Yeah, Phil, I,
1: Phil's chomping at the bit. I can hear uh, it from here. Yeah, we
0: can we can get real hard into that, you know. But, uh, you know, I, I, anyways, because, frankly, I was most interested in the... Actually, I, I guess I, I hesitate to call it its own specific subset, but almost the philosophy of engineering and the application mm-hmm. of science to the physical world, and really, you know... Uh,
1: Materialism. Exactly.
0: And, you know, yeah. uh, determinism, kind of in yeah. economic yeah, determinism sure. in particular, has a big role in that. But anyways, uh, the thing that I was going to say, although now I think I've completely forgotten it because I've gotten so... Oh, oh, right, okay. The, uh, you're just, wa- you know, I'm just, we're, we're nerding out here about philosophy so hard uh, and, and ideas and things. Probably one of the most really transformative things for me was um, I'm in these courses and everything and I'm starting to really ask, starting to think hard about the question, why is it that people believe uh, incorrect things, right? Or or why do people believe irrational things or non-scientific things? Or why do people not trust science or engineering or whatever? um, But they will trust, you know, politics on these questions, right? Things like global warming and stuff.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: But you're asking, sorry, I, sorry. Sorry. Uh, but you're asking people to trust something that you believe to be real.
0: Well, so right. so yeah, well no. no, 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 no <laughs> isn't so, that so, just
1: a faith isn't that a faith question see, in well, that's, of itself?
0: But well that's the that's one of the major questions, right? Is uh, is is science is objective scientific is scientific reality objective versus exactly. a metaphysical yeah. reality, right? But so exactly. the, one of the biggest things though for me was reading uh some kind of sociology works on you know, uh, witchcraft trials and a uh, belief in magic and occultism and things and conspiracy theory and realizing or, or learning that this idea that, you know, societies change quickly, well, that's like you said, or, or cultures change quickly rather is mostly a superficial change. It appears, right? Right. So, and that's kind of the point that we try to drive home constantly on the show is, you know. Um, we still believe in magic we still believe in all that stuff now we just call it quantum entanglement or we call it you know aliens <laughs> yeah. or whatever right like the underlying beliefs haven't really changed um anyways so I, actually i'm i'm actually quite interested so matt you did kind of public health uh, medical anthropology right i think is what you called it
1: yeah um so like public health is more on a sort of macro sure. kind of like a like a a provincial sort of level or state level, mm. um, but mine um, was much more grounded. I so my research was in concussions. Okay, um, I have a obviously a wicked number of concussions as well. So um, I my methodology was like a reflexive approach. So I used my own experiences in my interviews with people. Uh, athletes who have concussions, and then I also interviewed medical professionals who treat athletes with concussions. Okay, So I did like two sets of interviews.
0: Interesting, and Phil, you are in sociology. Can you do you want to give us kind of the quick? I know this is a hard challenge for any graduate student. Give us like the quick, <laughs> you know, that the 50 second, if you can do it, uh, rundown of your thesis. Yeah, All right? Sure. Let's just distill six years of your life. Into a <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> I could actually, well, I'm going to go back to my master's degree. So my master's degree, I fell in love uh, with historical sociology, mm-hmm. and I decided to investigate the first um, organized municipality of Upper Canada, which is now Ontario. It happens to be in a town called Brockville, and it took the form of a police board or a board of police. So I basically traced the formation of the board of police uh, leading mm-hmm. to the incorporation of the city Um And that kind of led me to these questions around um, what sort of um, stories do municipalities tell or make over the years. So my current PhD research is actually about uh, the historical sociology of the concept of resilience and how it applies to uh, municipal governing structures. So I'm looking at... um, the Rockefeller Foundation's 100 Resilient Cities campaign, and tracing how the concept or the story of resilience gets picked up and changed in policy work.
0: So what? So by resilience, what do you what do you mean exactly? Like what? I guess that's kind of what you're getting at, but
2: mm-hmm. yeah, um, very much so. Yeah.
0: Right. It's kind of like you know what is justice, right?
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: oh, what a what a question. Um, do you mean do you mean I guess sort of the ability to bounce back from tragedy do you mean the ability to kind of maintain a standard of living like what resilience in terms of economics in terms of uh i don't know demographics like what do you mean by that
2: it can be all those things sure (laughs) Um, okay yeah (laughs) all right you you
0: you guys in your ivory towers yeah yeah yeah. Yeah, so so this (laughs) depends on your body positionality
2: Um, you know, this is the interesting thing with my research is like uh, resilience has become a buzzword. Um, no one no one can pin down exactly where it comes from. But I go mm-hmm. back actually to Bacon uh, and the scientific method and show that he actually used a form of the, the word uh, and, you know, kind of trace it to the present through scientific literature. And then you know, I end up at municipalities and I say, you know, they want to capitalize on the buzzword for a variety of reasons, but what are the real world implications of these policies? So mm-hmm. take, for example, a uh, so-called strategy, coastal strategy, um, uh, dealing with climate change and dealing with the erosion of the coast. Uh, they're going to call that, you know, a resilient strategy. They're going to have a whole bunch of targets that they're going to try to aim for, and they're going to put in a whole bunch of predictive models for data to show how many years do we have left what's the coastal erosion over time they're going to run all these sorts of models about human behavior how do people adapt to the erosion of the coast where will people move to economic models for the impact of the erosion of the coast all these sorts of things and what i'm showing in my research is that All these different predictive models, all these sorts of ways in which we view communities at the municipal level are rooted in this concept of resilience, the ability to bounce Mm -hmm. back. So how much stress is a leader of a community, say a mayor or the town council, willing to put on a certain population, say the homeless? So we say, well, let's save the rich communities, but, you know, the homeless communities over there doesn't really matter, They can can adapt. They're going to move. Right. Mm -hmm. And that those are kind of like so I'm jumping from the philosophical and kind of theoretical question of what a word means down to the very practical in the sense that you could almost envision seeing someone next to the coast being eroded who isn't accounted for in that policy. So who is spoken for and who is impacted by resilience policies? Um, is is kind of really important going forward as we see more and more strategies to deal with the unknown.
0: Hmm, that's really interesting. You know, it's it's actually it's it's odd. So in my in our little area here where we live, um, we live in Saint Paul, uh, in Minnesota, in the United States, and where we are, uh, Minnesota has a or the twin cities at least have a very large, a very large homeless population, right? And I'm always super. I'm always very, very surprised, or I've been very surprised this last winter, with how brutally cold it gets here. Um, It it still seems like there manages to be uh, still quite a a relatively constant population of homeless individuals, right? And it's because because it's so cold, though, I would think that just in terms of climate, it would be almost a uh, an easier challenge, I think, for. say, municipalities to tackle because they don't have to worry about uh, people, you know, know, if you become displaced or homeless, um, it just seems to me like it would make sense for you to move if you could. But, of course, that hump of if you could is a big challenge, right? I mean, you wouldn't be homeless, you know what I mean, if in that instance necessarily. So,
1: like, out here, sorry, I'll just say, like, I'm from Vancouver, and, like, there you can live outside all year round. It gets pretty cold in the dead of winter, but but like freezing, that's it, right? right. But here in Ottawa, it's, it's like Minnesota weather as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and we have a, for the capital city, Canada, like we have a fair-sized homeless population as well. Um, and it seems like there is enough shelter beds, but in Vancouver, it's a real problem with not enough um, places to house the homeless. Um, so that's why it seems like there's just so many more out there.
0: Sure. Well, Um, well, yeah, well, that's actually kind of what, kind of what I was getting at, I think, was that Mm. it seems interesting to me that this problem, a problem that on its surface seems very simple, right? Has all these layers to it. Stuff like you were saying, the number of available beds or Mm -hmm. the literal ability to, right, this area, we're pretty, the Twin Cities, we're surrounded by fields and farms and stuff. Right? So it's not exactly like there's any place to go, yeah. right? Exactly, yeah. So that also leads to this continuing issue and stuff. And so whenever people's, whenever I talk to people about this, or, you know, whatever the, you know, the, the point is always made, like, you know, I always expected to be, I, I never would have expected it to be uh, so bad here, right? This, this challenge of homelessness and putting people in beds and everything else. But again, I think it is just a matter of, Kind of what you were saying, all these, all of these things, all these ideas coming together, and then, um, I don't know. I guess I hesitate to call it resilience. I guess because I, I, don't know what that word means, really. I think talking to you has made me sure of that, at least. But, um, you know, it makes me wonder, though. Kind of, I guess, the impulse. Um, so in engineering, there's this idea of impulse and then uh, response to us in a system, right? So, for instance, if you're looking at, like, the pH of a solution, so your pool or whatever, right, a, a big body of water, if you uh, add, uh, I don't know, a bunch of acid or something in, it will, the pH will drop, right, so there's an impulse, but eventually if the system is is big enough, that impulse will then eventually just be kind of evened out, and so at, you know, the steady level stays constant, right? So I wonder almost, in the same way, Can this population or can social challenges like this, like poverty or homelessness or whatever, I wonder if you can see or a similar effect is occurring here where you have, okay, a momentary impulse, but because the situation is so big, because the population is so large, because the problems are so intertwined, that your system is almost built in such a way that it it retains what we in engineering would call steady state, right? So you're, say, total poverty level, Never drops below, I don't know, 15% or something, but it never goes above 25 either, but you're always around that same level. So no matter how much you try to change it, um, it takes a big, big impulse to make a big dent, right? Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Um, No, you're absolutely right. And one of the things that I do pick up on is how the models of resilience and engineering get imported into other fields because what you're describing is visual it's a nice story it's a nice metaphor and it's a certain way of envisioning how human behavior can come together and when you have a model when you have a theory like that you can then go out and test it and you can begin to ask questions about it right but there are implicit biases found in that so your steady state for example has been kind of the model used for things like poverty, things like unemployment. So Mm -hmm. if the unemployment rate remains at 4%, we're happy. Impossible to have an unemployment rate less than 7%. And I'm just throwing these numbers out there, but they're not that far off. So when you have a model that says the world is constructed around things that have steady states, they will have steady states, Mm -hmm. right? But if we take a moral stance and say no, that steady state of poverty, that steady state of unemployment is unacceptable. We have to aim for zero. Then you can develop policies with that in mind. Otherwise you're developing policies um for the ninety six percent and leaving four percent out of the equation.
0: Right. You're trying to just get as good as we can, not not perfect, not exactly, or maintain yeah. the status quo. Right, yep, absolutely. Yep, yeah. It's yep. super interesting.
1: So And and like so I just tack onto that, like when a concept like resilience gets applied to the health fields, like my my area of research, um, the the linguistic qualities of it, um, they take on new meanings, right? So if you talk to somebody like myself who's had the amount of concussions I've had and uh, a doctor tells me to be resilient and tells me to bounce back, what does that mean? Like, should I go... Mm, take up hockey again like right. maybe i'll go play defense yeah. this time right and um and then also you see other terms that kind of get cast like that fall out of favor so i'm thinking of the term survivor uh, mm-hmm. but also victim and um, something that phil raised on one of our episodes in the past and i thought it was kind of interesting um kind of interesting i thought it was very interesting um was this Aww. idea that we don't really say people are coping Anymore Mm, with their illness, absolutely, yeah, Um, or just putting up with it. So it's it's interesting. Like that is an example where culture changes really rapidly, is in the the linguistics. Um, But the meanings there; those are the things that are are kind of stable,
0: right? So the underlying Mm. the underlying idea is still there, even if we call it something different.
1: Yeah, Mm. and an anthropologist, we would call that a symbol, basically, but Mm. the meanings behind things. Yeah,
0: so. (laughs) Wow, so that's really interesting. So I mean, so obviously our show uh, deals with, you know, weird stuff, right? <laughs> I
1: love weird ooh, stuff, ooh, man. I that's do. why I studied anthropology. It's great, right? <laughs> I know. It's
0: funny, actually. The more, the more I learn about anthropology, uh, and you know, kind of, uh, kind of the ideas and things behind it, the more I'm like, man, I should, I should really go back to school. You we know? get
1: that a lot, and that's what <laughs> I mean—that we're bad at marketing ourselves. Because right. I had the same thing. I was in university for like—I was in uni- my undergrad was eight years long, and then I ran out of courses to take. I was taking ancient Middle Eastern history um, with a religious studies uh, focus, um, and I just ran out of classes. And I stumbled in an Anthro 101 class because that's where all my credits transferred the most over into. First class fell in love with it. I'm like, oh my goodness, why didn't somebody tell me this like nine years ago? Right, this would've been really yeah. this would've been really <laughs> good. Thousands of dollars. <laughs> right. Yeah. So many yeah.
0: dollars ago. Yeah. So actually that kinda that kinda brings me to, I guess, kind of a foundational question or I think a really good question for our listeners who may honestly not know much about um either of your fields of sociology or anthropology. So actually quick, I'm gonna start with I'm gonna start with you, Phil. What would you say are kind of the you know, if so, when people ask me what are what are the kind of quick and dirty like top three ideas of chemical engineering, right? What I like to tell them are things like you know, um, well, energy is always minimized if possible, right? Um, your uh, the mass that you put into a system has to be the mass you get out, and uh, same with energy, the energy in has to be equal to the energy out, and basically, you know. Um, mathematics is just a tool those are kind of the big things that i took away from my engineering degree and kind of what i apply i think every day if you had to kind of give i guess a quick and dirty like what is one sociological concept or idea that you wish more people in the public knew about
2: oh boy um you know sociology is quite broad uh, before sure, yeah, i answer of the course. question um, you know my my kind of realm of sociology is historical sociology uh, so I you know half history, half sociology, but I also do science and technology studies, which is a field in sociology that is inter intra and multidisciplinary. So I think one of the things going forward is the sort of disciplinary boundaries that we used to have um, are eroding and those lines mm-hmm. are getting blurred so, the sociology of like the 1950s and 1960s that 1970s even that was characterized by structuralism you know um a rigorous sociologist finds structure in the social realm and will find laws of the social though that was kind of the way to explain sociology uh, around that time those are eroding so now we have something like the linguistic turn where we look at the language that we use mm-hmm. um Postmodernism has shown us that there are multiple sort of viewpoints, multiple realities in which people can live and construct their lives. So, a good scholar of a postmodern sociology will, you know, examine that in a dispassionate way. So, I guess one message that I would have, and the message that I kind of tell my first-year students, is sociology can be what you make it. If you if you can justify your methodological approach. If you can justify your research question and justify why you're going about asking a question, it can be sociology. Mm. Um, And I think that openness of the discipline is is one of its essential characteristics. Um, So no longer are you bound to just study human behavior in sociology. You can study the interaction of technologies in humans laws in humans Um, you know we have legal scholars for example who barely even talk to people they study law Uh, that's considered sociology so um, I think being a little bit open uh, as to exactly how we define it is one of its essential characteristics if that makes any sense you know
0: greetings from evergreen podcasts we're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Sure. No, it absolutely does. I think, I think that is, it's interesting to me actually that I guess, so the view I always had of sociology almost was not, so I guess maybe because I was taught in, I guess, kind of a, you know the postmodern phase of this field, right? So, when how would you characterize? I guess how would you characterize the beginning of this new shift over in thinking, let's say, towards linguistics, towards postmodernism? Um, for the listeners it's at home, the eighties, yeah. So the eighties, yeah. right?
2: Yeah, yeah uh, absolutely. Basically. So, Give um, take, you know, one right. of the defining, <laughs> one of the defining moments, um, in social theory was the translation of uh, French philosophy uh, into the English language. So we actually imported a lot of the. The French philosophical texts into social theory. Um, And at the time, they were kind of combining social studies, history, philosophy, and psychoanalytics. And Mm -hmm. they quickly found that language and how we define things are an essential component to the human experience. Um, And that kind of was like a radical turn for North American sociology. And we have scholars like Michel Foucault, for example, Mm -hmm. who said, well, you know, how we look at the ways in which our lives are governed, the structures that govern us um, is embodied in how we live as humans and, mm-hmm. you know, how we view our potential as human, for example. Sure. Those yeah. are questions that are asked by the people um, like Talcott Parsons or Popper even, right? Sure. They don't care about human potential. They're not asking those existential questions. They're asking very structuralists what are the laws of nature and how are they reproduced um sorts of questions and then Foucault comes along and says no it's not about that um it's actually about what what does this represent to us so you have this thing called the insane asylum but what does that represent and how does it function um and that sort of move happened in the 80s and 90s there there was a chipping away of Marxism as well that Mm -hmm. happened um you know, you, we used to have this duality whereas you were a Marxist or you weren't a Marxist. And mm-hmm. if you were a Marxist, you did certain types of research. And if you weren't, then you did the other. And it was this very kind of dualist camp. Um, that sort of structure got chipped away. And now to say that you are a Marxist sociologist, people kind of roll their eyes at you. You're <laughs> not really going to do that. You're actually probably doing something else, you know? Right. Um, yeah. It's and funny. Then, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. It's,
0: oh, no. I was going to say it's funny. It's funny to me that the – it's funny to me, though, too, that the listeners at home who may not be kind of involved in, I guess, sort of, you know, Um, I guess, you know, academic kind of views of Marx and Marxist philosophy and stuff when they hear Marxist, they think something very different, again, because of the way that language yeah Yeah. Right. yeah, Versus, right? I mean, so they're absolutely. thinking, you know... Like, I'm a socialist. Yes. Right. Like, how does that make everyone feel? Yeah. <laughs> like, what does that make you Right. Think? You know, it's, it's, it is it's interesting to me, kind of, I guess, the... Um, I saw an article the other day that was I thought was very interesting. I actually haven't had a chance to read it yet. It's been sitting open on my phone. But the article says, you know, uh, Marx's philosophy was right, his economics sucked. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, it's, absolutely you know, cool. and it's... It's sort of an interesting. It's an interesting thing that you know. I don't think people realize just how much of our modern, um, yeah, you know, criminology, sociology, anthropology, um, even even economics to some extent, and um, you know, uh, bioethics. Oh, 100%. There's like there's
1: dominant fields of uh, economic sociology and economic anthropology as well. Oh, those are big. Yeah. Those are big fields. Yeah. Sure, sure. Yeah,
0: um, yeah. I, I just find it. I always find it interesting or funny when people. Will claim, you know, oh, you're, you know, you're a Marxist, right? Or you're, you're a, you're a <laughs> Stalinist, or whatever. Yeah. And it's like, well, kind of all of science is Marxist at the moment, kind of, sort of. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's kind of still operating in that same.
1: That's um, very communal. You know, yeah, cool. like the animal cool. kingdom is—it's yeah, all interconnected. Yeah. It's right? all great,
2: yeah. A, Anyways, the, anybody who's done a peer review has been a really good Marxist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um. So so Matt, why don't you give us kind of the same uh, short and dirty, I guess, kind of view of anthropology or where, or I guess, I guess I should say, because again, um, with sociology and anthropology, I think it's interesting. I have been so when people I think say those terms. Uh, to a sociologist or anthropologist it's like if someone called me an engineer right like mm-hmm. i am an engineer yeah, yeah, yeah. but there's very you know i i can't i can't design a uh, a piece of software or i can't even put together a circuit right um crap i can't even change the tires of my car you know what i mean <laughs> like i mean i could probably figure it out but i'm not yeah. going I- to
1: I think for Phil and I, that feeling of like whoa, whoa, whoa uh, comes when someone's like, oh, well, you're an expert in like Phil's an expert in society, and Matt's an expert in culture. It's like whoa, no, 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 that's impossible, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah,
0: (laughs) yeah, absolutely, right. That these fields are much broader, or there are uh, there's a lot of there's a lot more depth here than there is in other, I guess, specialties. But just because of the way the words are used, again, getting back to this linguistics thing. So, Matt, Mm -hmm. uh, what I guess would be your What would be your big takeaways, I guess, from what you've learned so far in anthropology or as an anthropologist?
1: Um, Well, so, yeah, it was kind of interesting. Like, I get it a lot. Like, nobody knows what anthropology is, right? Sure. Like, most of the people think it's archaeology, which, confusingly enough, is one of the branches of anthropology. Um, Or (laughs) the other people think that I'm, uh, like... um, the dinosaur hunter or whatever. Paleontologist. Right? Like up, yeah, paleontologist. Yeah. That's it. Um, for some reason, I never forget that word, but I did there. Um, so basically, anthropology is, like, in a nutshell, is a study of human culture. Um, but as Phil was saying with sociology, where, like, the disciplinary boundaries have opened up, same thing happened in anthropology in the 80s um, for different reasons, but the, the result was the same. So in anthropology, you can... You know, study human culture. You can study animal culture. You can study the interaction between animals and humans. Mm-hmm. Um, you can theorize about landscapes, so like the natural uh, physical environment and how that impacts humans and vice versa. So it's broadened out that way. But in a nutshell, it's culture, and what we mean by culture is the symbolic meanings. Um, so the meanings that we ascribe to our kind of lived experience, like sure. the things that we perceive. Um, history is a huge component in anthropology, um, just like, uh, Phil's a s- historical sociologist, but, um, you know, in anthropology, history is usually throughout the whole discipline in some way or another. Um, and then also, um, a key feature of anthropology is like, I would do analysis as an anthropologist based on the things people have told me and like, say their transcripts from their interviews, mm-hmm. but the analysis usually is at the very least 50 50 if not the majority coming from them like our participants are actually the one doing and the analysis we're just sort of applying some theory to help the process along so um Mm -hmm. that's a really key component of anthropology and it's a hallmark of the sort of postmodern turn from the 80s on where we sort of took like the authority away from the anthropologist who's supposed to like kind of know everything and be the expert Mm -hmm. um and giving it back to the real experts the people we work with right Right. um and then like the last piece in american anthropology and that's what i study um there's four fields right um cultural anthropology so that would be what i did with the concussion people so going out and talking to people like or the classic image of going to some far-off village and living with them for like a year that's a cultural anthropologist and then there's also biological and physical anthropology so those are the people who We'll either dig up the the bones um, and analyze the um, uh, human remains or um, organic remains, so like pollens and things like this, Mm -hmm. so plant remains, and recreate life that way. Or they've been used um, currently or uh, more recently uh, to go out to sites of mass burials, mass graves Mm. um, after genocides, and help identify bodies. So that's what physical or biological anthro does. And then there's linguistics, which is a huge field in anthropology, it's all language, as Phil says. Sure. And then archaeology is the fourth field.
0: Sure. So, where so, so, where, so that's would you, basically it. where would you guys, I guess, I'm sure you've had many arguments about this over drinks. <laughs> How would you distinguish sociology from anthropology and vice
2: versa? Oh, that's that's the killer question. Isn't it? If, okay. If <laughs> wow. it was just me
1: and Phil together, we that would be the, the night of conversation right yep. there. It's like, yep. that's just the start point that we just go. But if we're in like, um, like the proverbial cocktail party sort of setting. Sure. Um, it, the the quick answer is like Phil studies society or social organizations. Matt studies culture and um, cultural meanings. That
2: would that would be the sort of okay. And so debate. just to, and, and, but, just to be clear, but, to the listeners, and, and and at at that to point. Desc- at that point, to... I bite my tongue and I look really yeah exactly. angry. And then and I, I almost just, th- just threw a caveat
1: into that as well. So. Okay, I was gonna
0: say I was gonna say for the listeners, just to be clear. You did just describe yourself as Matt in the third person. Um, yeah, so that's yeah, good exactly. too. So that's yeah, good. It's a, Interesting. It's, yeah, yeah that's called a good, ethnographic uh, distancing. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> actually, that's actually a really good question for you guys. What is your what is your favorite, or I guess I should say, what is the most? Um, if you had to pick a piece of jargon, to uh, oh. I don't know to use in oh, like yeah, a, no, a title a or something <laughs> or right. So for me, for me, my favorite jargon in engineering is uh, or in chemical engineering and chemistry generally. My favorite jargon is fugacity because it means huh. nothing to anybody. It is <laughs> what fug- fugacity is one of those things where if you ask your professor in undergraduate or graduate school what how do they describe fugacity, they will either. Uh, if you're in graduate school, they will shake their head and say, nobody knows. And if you're an undergrad, they will look at you sternly and give you uh, an answer that's kind of right but kind of wrong. Fugacity is technically, it is, and again, I'm definitely going to butcher it here. Fugacity is the real pressure of a system versus its ideal pressure if it was an ideal gas.
1: Oh Yeah, no, I know.
0: Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, man, like, I, I know if you gas these, are you kidding me?
2: What, I, oh, so what would I, be, I what know would word be, gas.
0: There you go. Somewhere, okay, so we're doing fine. Uh, what What would you guys say is your favorite piece of jargon in each of your fields? You,
1: uh, I got go, one, go like, first. just off the top of my head. I think I know. Yeah, I, I got is, one. So nice, so go, yeah, that's yeah. a good one. Yeah, you know what it is. Um, so it's a philosophy term. I, I used existentialist uh, phenomenology in my research, believe it or not. Um, so the uh, – I know, I know. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> I know. <Man. laughs> um, so my favorite term, and I use it around the house constantly, is uh, gestalt. Yes. Yes.
2: yes.
0: <laughs> oh, my goodness. It's so funny. It's like, I, oh, like, I just gestalted
1: all over these pod it's one, notes right it's, now. It's, it's one of
0: those words where it's like um, – Disgusting. Oh, my goodness. It's a terrible (laughs) terrible word. It's like every – I think every philosopher, every – I guess academic, not even just philosophy, every academic uh, has a word like – if they become famous, they have a word like that that they start using, right? So, like, for Sartre, it was – for Sartre, it was freedom. Right, what oh, yeah, Sart yeah. means by freedom—it's like okay, that doesn't mean that—that that, that doesn't mean that to anybody else, yeah. right? It's just
1: another word for nothing left to lose, right?
0: Right, yeah, pretty much, right? <laughs> um, you know, it just, it's just—it's—it's another word of the, his myriad words for angst at the end of everything. Um, you know, it's—it's it's so funny. So, okay, so Gestalt. So, what uh, for the listeners? What? How would you come to to define Gestalt?
1: It's—I—I I believe it's a sudden realization. Like, you're like, oh, <laughs> <Eureka."> <laughs> like it's a light bulb moment. But to me, like, an alternate definition would be when you're laughing, but then accidentally, like, snot comes out of your nose. That would be a Gestalt. <laughs> oh, I gestalted. Oh, my gestalt. Hope nobody was eating. I'm trying it, to though. think. I'm
0: trying to think. I know in my head, I know. Did Hegel use gestalt all the time?
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was going to say he, because yeah, he, it's um, it's a German, um, like. Pre psychoanalytic, okay philosophical, yeah, uh psychology sort Yeah, so of it's like it's like gestalt psychology. It's like psychopontier. It's used like to. all
0: those other ones. Right, okay, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Ridiculous. Okay, uh Phil <laughs> Phil, how about for you? Now that uh, we've I, gestalted everywhere. <laughs> I
2: actually have two. Um okay. so my first one I think is kind of in between, Matt and I. Um it's a word uh so I, I might mispronounce it, but it's ethnomethodology um okay uh,
0: yeah that's that's intimidating yeah
2: it's just like it's basically like a word ethno and then tacked onto another word method and then (laughs) ologized and it's just one of these things that's like well everyone does it but no one does it yeah and some people specialize in it
1: yeah, I'm trying to think, like, what does that even mean, man? Like, well,
2: okay, so... Um, <laughs> but it means
1: everything, man.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, that's it. And Okay, so I actually I have a definition in front of me, okay? So it was developed by Garfinkel, and this is... I'm going to put the definition because this is, like...
1: <laughs> sounds it, like a guy would make this word you up. You know yeah.
2: Garfinkel
0: gestalted.
2: Yeah. All the time. Over yeah. ethno yeah. So it's basically the assumption of someone's background and how that helps them make sense of everyday situations. So... Basically, how one lives their life—just <laughs> a really
0: complicated word for being a person exactly. with a working brain. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah working being memory, a, being a conscious, right? Yeah, a conscious, a conscious mind in the world. All yeah, right. Yeah.
2: Um, and the other one, which is much more closer to sociology, and it's a little—it's becoming a pet peeve of mine—is um, governmentalization mm, or governmentality. Okay. Oh. Well. Um, governmentalization yeah. governmentalization or governmentality uh, a little bit of a pet peeve of a yeah. word um it's jargon uh, no one you know it has a very particular definition from an author sure. um but it's just it's being picked up and it's used everywhere so mm. yeah hey phil how many times
1: can you use government or governmentality into one sentence
2: uh, I, well, I've actually done the math on that, Matt, uh, and sure. uh, so my worst <laughs> sentence, which uh, absolutely got rewritten, uh, it had it uh, seven times in one sentence. Wow. <laughs> that's like, what is it? There's that sentence. <laughs> I'm applauding. <laughs>
0: what is it? There's a sentence in linguistics that's famous because it uses the same, It use it's all one word. But it's like uh, all a, it's all it's still a good grammatical sentence, right? Uh,
2: well, the one that I know is from uh, Pierre Bourdieu, and it's about structures. So it's the um, structuring oh. structures that uh, structuring structures of structuralization.
0: Okay, it's that some structure it's, structuration or structuration, right? Something it's, like it's, like. it's something yeah. like that where it's like it's it's oh, I can't remember. It's it, for Donk. yeah. Yeah, it's like the blue, blue of blue, or it's cr- wacky. Anyways.
1: Imagine if you had to do the French translation on that. I know, too. that's that's <laughs> terrible.
0: You have to find all these other double on top, you know, all these other what secondary is meanings. What structure the male? Which one's the female? <laughs> right. You know, actually, it, it actually you reminded me just now of one of my other favorite ones that I've, I've been using often in, in my work is RAGAGAP.
1: Ooh, what's RAGAGAP that? RAGAGAP hmm.
0: stands for Recognized and Generally Accepted Good Engineering Practices. It is a term from OSHA, from, uh, from um, you know... so like
1: a certification body? Yeah,
0: so OSHA is, yeah. OSHA is Occupational Safety and Health Administration. Right. Um, so for engineering design, uh, you have to... There are certain things that have to be designed based on RAGAGEP which is recognized and generally accepted good engineering practices. And so uh, for like a long time at my job, every project has a folder that's labeled Ragagap. And I was like, what the hell? Just like, what is, you know, I'm going to open it and, and a gnome is going to pop out and be like, I'm Ragagap. You know what I mean? Like I had no concept of what the hell this word it, it, meant. It
1: sounds like the sound you would make if you fell into a heavy piece of machine. Right, it's,
0: right. It sounds, like the, it, it sounds like the sound you make when you're not wearing your... Your uh what's it? Your your OSHA yeah, your OSHA recognized uh stuff and you you get hit, you know, on the yeah. face or something.
2: I'm just gonna say that's my new D and D name. Next Raga- time I play, <laughs> That's, that's Gap in the one going the
0: destroyer. <laughs> yeah, it's it's fascinating. Um Raga Gap the Machine. I like it. Ragged Gap the Machine's a great uh, I might have to go start a new That's a bad new dude. game of Dark Souls. So uh so guys actually quick so well not quick. We still got plenty of stuff to talk about here, but so for, uh, so for kind of our show, right? So we focus on, like I said earlier, you know, weird stuff and and, uh, you know, these areas of kind of, I guess, the these areas where real science and pseudoscience and uh, groups of people that believe in fringe topics, right, conspiracy groups and chat rooms and things like that, whatever, where they come together. And actually, one really interesting question that I've been one question that's kind of reared its its uh, less than pretty head recently has been what intersection is there between, say, uh, far right or not even far right necessarily, it doesn't have to just be far right, but between extremist groups and uh, these communities of, say, occultism or um, conspiracy theory and stuff, right? So there's, in the United States at least, there's a very well-known phenomena where, you know, militia groups and right-wing groups and stuff tend to center around conspiracy theories, right? So these concepts of the government coming to take away guns or, um, all these other kinds of notions and stuff. And then on the other hand, the other edge of that, you have, um, cults that tend to gravitate towards, uh, more kind of socialized, uh, visions of what a perfect utopia would be like, right? And then they oftentimes will mix in religion or, esotericism or uh, UFOs or whatever into that mix I guess for um I guess what's I, I don't know, I don't even know how to frame mm-hmm. the question, but I guess what are what are your takes Welcome on that to the social sciences? <laughs> right. How do I even the, frame this? The good, the good sign of any the so, sign of any good kind of thinker, uh, but so, yeah. so
1: I wrote a diagram down with three arrows pointing towards a central arrow and four words around it. So here we go. Um, <laughs> uh so like when you say extremism far right or we can also think of extremist um ideologies like um extremist religions, so say, like, the quote-unquote terrorists, um, Mm. Islamic terrorists. um, That's on one end, but then there's also, that's an ideology, right, whether it's um, the alt-right or if it's, like, an ISIS type thing. Um, I think these are ideologies that are individually focused, and they're also kind of hedonistic ideologies, including the occult. Like, even if you're part of a cult and you're in this, like, group thing, you're focused on the one leader, right? Which is a very hedonistic sort of individualistic um, hmm. setup for this See, so, ideology. So actually, so I I wonder, like, if it's if it's um an an individualist thing versus a collective thing. I don't know. So I, I that's, actually that's my thoughts. I actually
0: think so. Hedonist. I think we're kind of thinking of it in different terms there, right? For me, hedonism is sort of the um. It's almost a giving away of oneself and the cult mentality, in my opinion, right? Because you're not necessarily trying to maximize your own pleasure or gain. You're trying to you're trying to give away your uh, your pleasure and gain and stuff for the leader, right? Which to me almost seems like a uh, it's kind of car- communist, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> yeah, you know, kind of. Yeah, it kind of seems to me to be almost a non or like I don't know, not because it is hedonism in a sense, but it's almost like a. Uh, I don't know. Because I, I,
1: like, I think of the cult, like a cult, like our definition of what a cult would be, uh-huh. and the occult as as different. Eh? Like, Absolutely. The occult is Absolutely. black magic, Satanism. Yes. And Satanism is, um, is a religion. It just might not be an organized religion because there's not many churches around or whatever, right? It's sure. hard. But those are, I think, like individual pleasure-seeking mm-hmm. um, sort of activities. And then even this... Um, Extremism like terrorism and the alt-right, um, even within that, those are individuals who feel like they don't have any worth themselves, so they want to join this group so that they can individually gain more self-worth. Mm, okay, I understand, that's, that's what, I that understand what you mind, mean yeah. there. Okay. But Phil's probably got some thoughts on this too. <laughs> I don't want to take all the time.
2: Uh, You know... As a dispassionate social scientist, I really don't see a difference between the right or the left on the political spectrum. I think they both have their myths of conspiracy. Mm -hmm. Uh, They attack generally Mm -hmm. the things that are most obvious, the government, uh, Mm -hmm. money, uh, big organizations, um, you know, the CIA, FBI, those sorts of things always become a target for both the Mm -hmm. left and the right. Um, When it comes to kind of occult groups, I'm, I'm not... I'm not deaf. Like I don't side either way. I think some of the things that they do are grounded in fact, um, and I think um, some of the things that they do aren't, and mm-hmm. that's that's their reality. So it's true mm-hmm. to them. Um, that's as a dispassionate kind of social scientist, right? They make their own kind of claims. Where the where I think it we start running into problems, and I think Matt kind of alluded to it is if you do have certain groups that are infringing on other people's rights or Mm -hmm. are hurting other people. That's where I think morality questions of ethics need to kind of come in. Right. And you can have your little cult group, but when you start killing people, that's a problem, right? Mm -hmm. When you start, um, you know, over, overstepping that little boundary that you have, then it becomes an issue. And, um, I'm not, I'm not in a position to be able to criticize anybody for their, Views um, mm-hmm. until they start infringing on other people's really, mm. yeah,
1: yeah, and, and we call that in in anthropology at least um, like relativism. Yep, um, mm-hmm. we take that term from Einstein, <laughs> I suppose, but it's basically like you don't judge another culture until they're breaking some of those sort of universal laws. Like, and we try not to use terms like universal. Well, I was gonna say, and then the but, question becomes,
0: yeah. what are those universal laws? Mm-hmm. Right, yeah, of course. So, yeah,
1: and, and this was. Yeah, like like some of them would be like sexual assault, um, harming minors, um, and like murder and right. we, have, we have things like we have things simple, that we yeah.
0: consider to be um
1: They transcend culture.
0: Right? right, but even but even some of those though, um, What about cannibalism? Right. Even some of those <laughs> become questionable, right? It become yeah. kind of interesting and, or, or, you know, I'm even thinking of besides yeah, cannibalism, you know, other ways that we deal with the dead, or even say, um, even say things like, you know, um, multiple marriages or child marriages or things like that. Like we yeah. have things that we in the West would consider to be, um, taboo, very, yeah. Very there's anti- some pretty
1: kooky, like puberty rituals out there as yeah, well. Exactly, you right? at, you'd so, be like, what? Yeah, you know what <laughs> yeah. I mean?
0: And again, like it is important, I think for us to be uh, cognizant of our own biases and things, right. But it, yeah. it does become, it, it does become kind of a, uh, it's interesting. It's a big, yeah. it's a huge question. And, it's a and question anything. that, you know.
2: Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interject again here because I said something and I think I, 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 I think we need to explore just a, a tad bit more. I said, be, because at first I, I kind of said, as long as they're not hurting anybody, it's okay. And everyone agrees with that. But then if we think for a second about what that means to hurt yeah. someone, then it becomes yeah. Yeah. a yeah. lot more murkier. So I'm going to take the example of anti-vaxxers, right? Mm-hmm. They can think that vaccines are mm-hmm. going to do them harm. And this is probably across the political spectrum, right, left, moderate, independent, whatever, right? There are anti-vaxxers everywhere. Um, But is it hurtful to go on Facebook and post basically anti-science and anti-vaccine posts uh, to try to convince other people not to inoculate their children or not to vaccinate their children? And that is a really complicated question. Right. Is, and,
0: it, is, is lying in itself doing harm?
2: Well, exactly. And because also I mean. is
1: the intent there to lie as well, right? Like is that their intention or are they also misled? I don't know. Yeah, yeah I mean
2: like their intentions yeah. can very well be just to spread information that they believe is true and factual and grounded in their yeah. own form of scientific belief. But then it might be reviewed by like an expert panel and determined to, to be, be less than factual and actually misinformation and then who gets to make those decisions right these are the sorts of ethical debates i think uh, that we're having in the social sciences and i think in the hard sciences like medicine or even engineering right
0: absolutely 100 percent. i mean one So actually one interesting question so i actually i had an interesting uh thing that happened to me today kind of that kind of goes along with this was um i'm i'm part of a bunch of different you you know I am part of a bunch of different kind of Facebook groups that talk about people that claim to have experienced things like you know alien abduction or um, you know contact with God or any of that kind of stuff, right? Because um, for the show, it's you know I think it is very interesting to get that viewpoint and see what people are really saying, right? And seeing how this idea evolves over time, in some ways. Right. Um, today though, someone posted a thing that basically you know I'm not going to give the specifics, but basically they were describing what to me sounded like. Uh, a very serious um, neurological uh, mm. emergency, right? Yeah. And like so, a
1: fugue state or something like that, right? Well,
0: yeah. you know, uh, a seizure, a or stroke, stroke or something, or something like that. Yeah, right? yeah, I can see that. And yeah, so I yeah. basically on their post, I said, "Go to a doctor immediately,"
2: mm. right? <laughs> you know, I, I said, yeah. you know,
0: yeah. um, you know, I'm not, I am not a doctor, um, I'm not a medical doctor but to me if one of my family members was showing those symptoms I would I would drive them to the hospital you know now
1: yeah you right? can see the signs of it something right like this,
0: absolutely so. and uh, one of the comments on it on it was well are you feeling are you, if you're feeling okay now because basically this was a group of people who claimed to have been abducted by aliens and so the person was asking was I just abducted hmm. right. right I just I woke up uh, I woke up on the floor uh, I can't I couldn't move my legs at first. I'm having trouble focusing, etc., etc. Was oh, I just abducted yeah. by aliens? In my mind, no, you, uh, your brain. Probably just had a stroke. Right. Something terrible has just happened to your brain. You yeah, better get to yeah. a hospital. And, uh, you know, I kind of got into a little bit, uh, not an argument per se, but a little bit of a dispute with someone who was like, you know, well, why would you say that? That's so scary for this person. You know, yada, yada, whatever. And, you know, I just kept saying, like, well, listen, like, I- I'm just saying you should go to a doctor. <laughs> you know, like, I, like to me, it doesn't matter if you're afraid or not. Like, I, I would be, I would be afraid
2: if that happened to me. Okay. So go to a doctor. Even, even if what... even if it is a like a real abduction, go to a doctor. I'm just right, going to say that, right? Like, because absolutely. yes, it, it is a scary thing. So yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> like like <laughs> it does.
0: Like like yeah. To me, to me the, the to ethically investigate these things. That's kind of what I'm getting at. To ethically investigate things like the paranormal. Uh, What you have to be sure of before you begin any kind of delving into the paranormal options or the UFO options or whatever is um, get the mundane stuff out of the way first, right? If you go to a doctor and they tell you, no, you're totally healthy, there's nothing wrong, you know, you got nothing on your brain, whatever, everything's all good, then maybe you can start going to a past life regressionist if you want to, right? But until then, it is unethical for someone to to suggest it as the first option in my mind, right? But that's, I guess, kind of the question I want to put to you guys, right, is how does one, if the ultimate reality of, let's take UFOs, right, if the ultimate reality of aliens is not true, okay, let's just take that as our initial assumption, it's not true, there are no aliens, we are alone in the universe, aliens haven't visited the planet Earth, whatever, then is it ethical to tell someone who has had a medical situation like this, who thinks they might have been abducted, that they could have been, and they should go talk to an expert on abductions, is that ethical? And then if aliens are real, is it ethical? <laughs> does there, does the existence, the underlying existence of the thing change it?
2: right? For me no. The, the, the existence of the phenomena is um, um, a separate thing than the lived reality of that awfulness of blacking out and waking up and being scared. And mm-hmm. I think um, finding root causes is um, kind of like the immediate sort of thing that we do in our society currently. And I think sometimes we need to take a step back from that and just kind mm-hmm. of um, be – I'm sorry to say this, but be a fucking human being – like, sure. if you have a headache, yeah, sure, sure. let's how about we treat the headache first and then we'll get to the root causes after, right? Sure. If I break my leg, the doctor isn't going to give me a lesson about why I shouldn't climb a ladder the way I did. He's going to treat the leg, he's going to, like, you know, put it back in place, put a plaster on it, uh, a cast, and then maybe I'll get a little moral story about how to climb the ladder safer the next time. So, we do that, we do, we have that approach of treating pain. And Mm -hmm. then dealing with the effects uh, of it, and then dealing with the causes later all the time. Uh, So why wouldn't we do it in a world in which uh, you know aliens exist or aliens? Right. The emotional trauma. Right. Right. Yeah, that's my approach, and I think Matt and Matt might have a a similar sort of answer. But
1: yeah, totally. Um, I I was I was thinking more in a completely different direction. So I'm like just trying to gather two thoughts at the same time. But I was thinking more. Like, I'm I feel like I'm more of a believer. Uh, I kind of believe in aliens a little bit, mm-hmm. and that's that's okay because I study anthropology. Dude, and we, no, I mean, listen, we, we veer in that direction a little bit I mean, more. Like, like well, hey, whatever you say, <laughs> man, but uh, no, but uh, but what I find fascinating is um, like, you see throughout the archaeological record, let's just say. Um, signs of people trying to make sense of the things they don't understand. Now, if you're mm-hmm. somebody without any sort of, even first aid training or whatever, and you don't know what the signs of stroke are or whatever, um, you, might, you might miss that. Or if you're the person who just had possibly a stroke, you're going to be confused. So you might not be able to rationally put that all together. So that should be taken into consideration. But people have always kind of made attempts to attach meanings, mm-hmm. uh, symbolic meanings, to the inexplicable, you know? So I think in um, the vast majority of cases, that's what's happening with aliens. But then I think, well, mathematically, they have to be out there, right? So right. <laughs> like that's how but, I come down. But the point still stands, But the point still stands. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, about the the stroke thing. Yeah, go to a, d- d- a doctor, man. Like, right, right. But I, but thing, I, I, think, yeah. I think
0: I think though, because actually, that is a question that has been sort of racking my mind since since before even that I you know went on this kind of wacky move on roller coaster. Right, was right. How to actually do this study? Uh, how to do this study ethically if the ultimate reality of what these people are claiming is not true? Right. So, you know, if um if you as a if someone comes to you and says they're very, very afraid of, of an alien or a UFO or something because they saw one and they're wondering now, are they going to come abduct them? Right. Something like that. Um, to me, it would seem to be right. So some people would would tell these people, well, you know, you should get we you, you can run the gamut. Right. Some people would say, well, they're not real. Don't worry. There's no evidence. They, you know, even in, even if you take it to be the fact that they're real. None of our evidence shows that, you know, just because you see one means you're about to get abducted. None of that's true other people though, on the same spectrum would say well they are real we know i know from my personal experience right that if you put this crystal in your house it'll keep them from your house or right. um you know whatever right if you if you pray to god it'll stop them from coming whatever right um to me i get what you're saying phil that you should what's the word you should uh, you should be cognizant and kind and uh, nurturing in some ways because these people did just have a scary experience, right? And so, you know, ultimately, you know, treat people the way that you want to be treated, right? If I had a scary experience, regardless of what it was, I would hope someone would be nice to me, right? So you should be kind. But in my mind, it gets back to that ultimate question of, well, is it, is it momentarily kind to be, uh, to buy into this fear that they have or to buy into this fantasy and then to um, let them believe a falsehood, or is it more kind or, or, or ultimately better in some way, ethically, to give them the truth of the matters as it stands and, I guess, sort of, you know, um, let them maybe momentarily be uncomfortable. Right, yeah,
2: and you know, I think, yeah, okay, 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 no, so go here, ahead he, after you Phil. here here's my issue with that okay i'm I'm not going to give anybody a crystal to put in their house, okay, sure, and of I don't think anybody here is, but we'd be put in a situation where we'd be sending them to someone who has the crystals and the supposed knowledge of crystals, right, and I think that that decision to say, "Oh, you had a genuine encounter and you need some crystals in your house, go see this person is irresponsible. If they seek that person out on their own and they're willing to do that, then so be it. But I am not in a position to refer anybody to help them mm. come to terms with either accepting or not accepting that there are extraterrestrials. And by the way, I'm just, I'm just going to agree with you, too. I am a full-on believer. Like, I think – I like, it is ridiculous to think that we are alone uh, in this sure. universe, right? Yeah. That's um, how I come back Have, I, have <laughs> I had an account? Ridiculous. No. Um, I – I'm not gonna say I, I want might've... to have one because it certainly <laughs> exactly. sounds scary. Um, but you know, if my neighbor came to me and said I saw something, like I'm going nuts and I'm scared, I wouldn't tell him to go see um, you know, a hypnotist. Like I think that's the right. response. But would
0: you but would you tell them to go see a psychiatrist?
2: I You'd you probably know, look at
1: his pupils first,
2: man. <laughs> yeah,
0: like, I think you I think though, you know like... like to some... <laughs> to me i guess the question i mean I, yeah i think this is a quite this is a thing we we could do another hour talking about this one question right i think it's ultimately the question that comes down to anything like this right but i guess i think it's i think it's an important question though that those in the field right now doing this kind of work maybe don't even have never asked themselves it mm. So can
1: I just um, so I don't forget, I just wanted to throw this into the mix for whatever it's worth. But in like the fields of anthropology, uh, the topics we discuss and the nature of our research, because we're going and engaging with people on one on one and having like long intimate conversations with them, stuff that is not within our research tends to come up so like you might be talking about something completely unrelated and it might veer into a territory and somebody tells you about a sexual assault Mm. right Mm -hmm. and there are principles in anthropology and there's certain research and ethics board uh, approval processes that are similar to the sciences but you know obviously a little bit different so we have these sort of supposedly like you know ethics and rules around how we're supposed to deal with this but the golden rule in anthropology and it's shared in a lot of disciplines, especially the health sciences, is um, do no harm. Mm -hmm. Like Make sure your research does no harm. So if you are um, doing research on UFOs, which is totally valid, Phil and I both agree, um, but if that research does harm, that's where Mm. there's a problem, right? So if you are sending somebody who has a medical or a suspected medical condition even to some crystal healer, Um, that's, that's dangerous. Right. But if you send them to a chiropractor, like if I send Phil to a chiropractor, that's not that crazy. Like I've seen chiropractors help people with back issues. So, um, so you want your, your work to do no harm. And then also, you also need to protect yourself uh, legally, right? Like if somebody tells you that they've been, I remember you mentioned this, Chris, on a previous show, but like if somebody describes something like a probing, if it's a woman describing this to you, you should. You have a responsibility to think, is this woman actually describing sexual assault, Right. and is it so traumatic that some sort of hallucination maybe happened? I don't know. I'm not a psychologist. But you have a legal responsibility to report that. And also if it's somebody who's like an adult and they're relating a story to to you from when they were a child, that's a legal quagmire as well. Right? Sure, yeah,
0: of course. If the, the, the ultimate question becomes – I think it's a question that comes up a lot in these cases is um – you know, one of the possible explanations for the abduction phenomena is um, people potentially being, yeah, assaulted, right, in some exactly. way. And it being yeah. a it being a cover, or not a cover necessarily, being a way to repress or change that memory uh, to make it more palatable to the person. Yeah. Uh, well, guys, this has been a – a su- <laughs> seriously, note. a su- – well, yeah, I mean, you know, we had to end it somewhere, and it couldn't yeah, right. be on jargon. Yeah. End it um, on probing. Right. <laughs> We're going to end it here on a kind of a dark note, but that's fine. <laughs> guys, it has seriously been – it has been extremely interesting, super fascinating. Um, that's, t- you know, t- completely why I really enjoy your podcast. Awesome. Thank if, you. Uh, folks, if you're listening to this and you like it, go check out the Semi-Intellectual Musings podcast. Um, you can find it on – uh, all of the places where you get your podcast. Do you guys have a website yet?
2: Uh, we do. That's uh, Bill's read- uh, We're on uh, Twitter, quite uh, yep. frequently on Twitter and active. We're at uh, the underscore SIM underscore POD. Uh, we also have a Facebook page at the SimPod. Uh, you can email us, semiintellectual at gmail.com. Uh, we would love uh, some iTunes reviews uh, because we're the podcast that asks for them when no one else does, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but, you heard uh, of your first, folks. Thank God, somebody's asking for <laughs> it. Right, I know, reviews, no one's finally. asking right now. So, you know, figured uh, corner of the market, be the only guys who ask for them. Yeah. Um, but if you do, we're going to plug your show um, or you as an individual who doesn't have a show um, or, you know, if you're an alien and you're listening, uh, you know, tell us uh, what uh, part of the quadrant you're in. Uh, tell us uh, tell us if you've seen the Borg. I'm really interested to know that. So, yeah.
0: <laughs> Good stuff, guys. Well, thank you so much for coming on.
2: Thanks oh, for, thank having for having no us. No problem.
0: Man. And I am, uh, yeah, super excited to have you guys on again sometime. Anytime, man. Cool. Thanks so much. You'll all right, have to come on uh, our show. I definitely will. I'm telling you. All right, folks. Hey, hey I
1: didn't agree to anything.
0: <laughs> I, see, I see how it is. No, no, it's fine. Whatever. It's cool. Uh, all right. Well, this episode's going right in the trash. Uh, <laughs> folks, again, Semi-Intellectual Musings. Go check it out. Uh, Matt, Phil, thanks so much for coming on. And uh, go, go out, listen, rate and review them. You know, they're a great show, really putting out some really interesting stuff. And- and yeah, go take a listen. So we'll be back again um, back again soon with a full episode featuring myself and Marie. All right. Thanks so much for listening. Good night. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation.